Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I am glad to see you all this evening. We are going to look at the next two psalms, Psalm 63 and Psalm 64. Neither of them are particularly complicated, and you could just read by them or read through them and think, well, that's just a very lovely psalm. That's nice. It's the backstory that is really, really interesting. If you understand the backstory, especially behind Psalm 63, then you understand the theology that David was committed to. We have talked several times in looking at the background of some of these psalms. We've talked about David's acknowledgement of the covenant that God has made with him And because he knows that God has given him unconditional promises that belong to him and his posterity, he has confidence in God despite his circumstances. However, what we're going to see tonight is equal with the fact that David knows the promises of God, the covenants of God, he also knows the punishment of God. He also knows that God has predicted difficult stuff for his future and for his family. And the judgments of God, as we've been talking a lot about here lately, the judgments of God are every bit a demonstration of God's sovereignty that his promises and his covenants are. And so we're going to see that this evening. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel 12. Now, this is a passage that we all know well. We know the story of David and Bathsheba. You certainly ought to know that by now. We've reviewed it a few times. And as a result of David's affair with Bathsheba and his responsibility for killing her husband in order to cover up the pregnancy, Nathan then confronts David and tells David a story of a wealthy man taking the only beloved baby lamb from a poor man, and David is outraged by the story. And David's anger burns greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. And that is the place in verse 7 where Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given to you many more like things. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, 
Now, this is the part that we're going to concentrate on tonight. Because we all know that part of David's judgment, part of the judgment that God doled out to David as a result of his guilt, is that God didn't allow the baby to live. And so David understood that that was the judgment of God. And we all think about that as the judgment for David and Bathsheba's sin. But there is also this promise from God. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So part of the judgment of God against David, since David had privately taken Uriah the Hittite's wife, God, in his sense of justice, says, well, then your wives are going to be given over to your companion, and he's going to lie with your wives. You did that secretly. I'm going to do it openly before all of Israel under the sun. And as part of that, the sword is never going to depart from your house because you have despised me. So that judgment, that promise from God is every bit as sure and certain as the covenant that David's going to have a continual posterity on the throne, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, culminating in the Messiah and his everlasting kingdom. That is a very positive promise, a very positive covenant that God has made with David. But he also has this very negative promise. And both the positive and the negative both show the sovereignty of God because God said in advance that he was going to do this. This is going to happen. So now turn over to chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. Remember that David's enemies are going to rise up out of his own house. We're going to start reading at 2 Samuel 16, starting at verse 15. Absalom, who is the son of David, and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. And it came about... When Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Then Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord, this people, And all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be 
and with him I will remain. And besides, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will so be strengthened. And they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, just exactly like God had predicted was going to happen. This is part of the judgment against David. Okay, so that actually occurred exactly like God said, because God's judgments, just like God's promises, are irrefutable, unavoidable, because it is a sovereign God who is saying it. So start reading at chapter 17 now. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted. And I will terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. And then I will strike down the king alone. So they're actually seeking David's life at this point. David is on the run. David is forced to go out of Jerusalem. Verse 4. And so the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thusly. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know that your father and his men, that they are all mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare, and he will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel shall surely be gathered to you, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. And so we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and of all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. And as he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to the city, and we shall drag it into the valley, until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity 
on Absalom. Okay, so what's happening here? David is on the run. David is hiding, and as he is traveling, as he is running, as he is hiding, he is also separated from the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is a really important part of understanding the psalm that we're about to read. Go back to chapter 15. We've established now that the sword is in David's own family. Absalom and his counselors are out to kill David. Absalom is taking David's wives, just like God had predicted. And David himself is separated from Jerusalem and separated from the ark of God. Now, the ark of God is the presence of God. That's the place where once a year the high priest could go in and make sacrifice on the Day of Atonements. He could go in and the presence of God would appear between the wings of the angels on the caparath above the ark. And so that is the place of God's presence, that is the place of God's worship, and David is separated from it. The first part of chapter 15 talks about Absalom's conspiracy and how he has decided that he is going to be king, and he does it through chicanery. Here's the way it happens. Chapter 15, verse 1, now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand by the way to the gate. And it happened that when any man had suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right. But no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. And then every man who has any suit or any cause could come to me, and I will give him justice. And it happened that when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I shall serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose, and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited And they went innocently, and they did not know anything about it. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from the city of Gilo, while he was offering sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, 
lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord my king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Those are the 10 concubines that were still in the palace that Absalom then later slept with, fulfilling the very word of God. And the king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. Then Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men and all his little ones who were with him And while all the country was weeping with a loud voice and all the people passed over, the king also passed over the brook Kidron and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites with him carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again. And he will show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, and your son Ahamaaz, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Then Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. And David went up, up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went. Okay, so one more thing. Turn to chapter 16. We're going to start reading at verse 5. All of these pieces are going to fit together in just a moment. You need to know that these are all happening to David because God in his sovereignty put these judgments on David. That the sword was not going to leave his house. That his wives were going to be slept with in broad daylight. All of this is happening to him 
because God had said so. And David knows what Nathan has told him. David knows that these judgments are coming directly from God. David understands that he is under well-deserved judgment. And David knew he was guilty, which is why he could say, if I live, I'll get to come back and see the ark, and I'll see Jerusalem. And if I don't live, God can do whatever he wants with me. Chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. And he came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. And thus Shemai said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zuriah said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. But listen to David's response. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zuriah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done this? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, who came out from me, seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on their way. And Shammai went along on the hillside parallel with them. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. Turn to Psalm 63. The prescript, the heading of this psalm, says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's everything we just read. David's got his own son trying to kill him. His whole house has been turned upside down. His son is sleeping with his wives out in public. The people of Israel have turned to Absalom to be their king. He has won them over with his flatteries. And by saying, you know, if you come with a suit against someone else, David's not going to hear you. The king's not going to hear you. I should be your judge. So he won the hearts of all Israel. So now David is out of Jerusalem, and he's on the run, and he's in the wilderness of Judah. He and his people, and even while he's there, he has to be reminded of the curse that was first cited to him by Nathan the prophet, and he was cursed yet again by a descendant of Saul who said, you're a bloody man, and Absalom, your son, is going to take the kingdom from you. 
And David himself recognizes that the curse he is under and the judgment of God is as sure and certain as the covenant of promise that he is always going to have a descendant sitting on the throne. So David is being reassured of God's sovereignty, both because of the promises of good to come and the promises of trouble and difficulty to come. Both of those speak to the sovereignty of God. And David recognizes that as the sovereignty of God, as you saw with Shammai, where when they wanted to cut his head off, David said, no, this is of the Lord. Knowing all of that, David sits down and writes, Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. How does David say that in the midst of what he's going through? Unless he knows an absolutely sovereign God who's in charge of the trouble as much as he's in charge of the blessings. Far too often we think, well, if I'm in the will of God, then everything is going to go good for me. Everything's going to go my way. When blessings are coming my way, that's proof that I am in the will of God. Then when the trouble comes, we're very prone to think, where's God in all this? But if you know the theology of the Bible, if you know the theology of David, if you know the sovereignty of God, you know that both the good and the trouble are from God. Just like Isaiah said, he's the God that forms light and who forms darkness. He's the God who brings the good and who brings wrath, the trouble. And so David, in the midst of going through the judgments that God has predicted and given to him, still goes back to God, because where else are you going to go? And he says, you are still my God, and I shall seek thee earnestly. It's the same David who said, maybe he'll kill me, or maybe I'll get back to Jerusalem, and someday I'll see the ark again, and someday I'll see the dwelling of God again. But it's up to him, whatever he wants to do. But my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Now, David might be saying quite literally while he's out there in the wilderness, he's having trouble with finding water. But he might also be saying the kind of longing that I have for you is the kind of longing that hits human flesh when it doesn't have adequate water. So he's comparing his longing with extreme thirst, extreme desire. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory because thy loving kindness is better than life. So this is so very interesting theologically. Here is David saying, I know the promise you've made me. I know the unconditional covenant you've made me. I know my posterity is going to sit on the throne everlastingly. And I know that Nathan has said that even though I am extremely guilty, that my sin has been forgiven because of the loving kindness of God. Even though I'm guilty and I have to pay a price, sin still has a price. David is still on the run because of his sin and because of his rebellion against God. But everlastingly, he is secure because God has forgiven his sin and God has made him covenantal promises through his loving kindness. So David can say, 
even if you kill me, even if I don't make it back to Jerusalem, even if I never see your ark again, knowing your loving kindness is better than being alive. It's remarkable theology. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. So my lips will praise you. In the midst of the terrible situation David's in. Sometimes I think we read these stories about David and we just kind of go, yeah, well, that happened. But from David's perspective, this is terrible stuff. And yet his response is to praise God. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you. I will speak well of you. I will eulogize you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And I will lift up my hands in an act of praise to your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. In other words, if I was eating to the full, if I had plenty of fatness and marrow to eat, I'm satisfied. My soul is satisfied. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches, for thou hast been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. So this language of joy and security and contentedness and satisfaction is in the midst of running for his life, Absalom trying to kill him. He's got people with him who are running with him. He's out of Jerusalem. He's away from the ark. He's away from the worship of God. And yet he can say, knowing you, God, is enough to satisfy me. And I will think about you. I will meditate on you. And I will sing for joy because I'm under the shadow of your wings. My soul, verse 8, my soul clings to you. Thy right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. And they will be delivered over to the power of the sword. And they will be like prey for the wild animals, for the foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So despite his terrible condition, despite saying, if God kills me, he kills me, he's still in, in praising God, in worshiping God, in singing to God, recognizes yet again, God is my protection. God has his wings over me. God is going to protect me. And those enemies that are trying to keep me off the throne, though I am there because of God's own promise, those people are ultimately going to be destroyed. They're going to go into the depths of the earth. They're going to be delivered to the power of the sword. They're going to be like prey for foxes. But as for me, I rejoice. And I emphasize yet again, he was rejoicing in terrible circumstances. So in other words, the worship of God, rejoicing in God, singing to God, praising God, recognizing God, trusting God, is not dependent 
on your circumstances. It is dependent on who he is. And because he is God Almighty and because he is God the Sovereign One, the circumstances you're in are in his hands. So when you're going through the difficulties of life, worship God. Far too often, and I've seen it so many times, far too often when things are going good, that's when people drift away. That's when people forget to worship God. That's when people forget to praise God. But God knows that he can bring about trouble in a person's life and it will drive them to their knees and it will remind them that they have nowhere to go but God. And that's certainly what David is demonstrating here. So that's why I want you to know the backstory first so you can know the terrible circumstances he's living with as he is declaring this great joy in the loving kindness of God. Psalm 64. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God. Hear my voice in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. And suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. And they talk about laying snares secretly. And they say, who can see them? They devise injustices saying we are ready with a well-conceived plot for the inward thought and heart of a man are deep. In other words, they think it's all hidden. They think it's counsel that only they know. But, verse 7, but God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will make him stumble their own tongue is going to be against them. All who see them will shake the head. And then all men will fear and will declare the work of God and will consider what he has done. So once again, David's theology here is God is going to judge people, shoot them with his own arrow that he's going to wound them, he's going to make them stumble, he's going to turn their own words against them. Everybody who sees them is going to be ashamed at them and shake their head at them. And the reason God is doing that is in order to declare the work of God so that everybody will know that God exists. So yet again, David is recognizing that the troubles of this world are still in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God, and he is using the trouble of this world in order to ultimately demonstrate that he is the God of the whole world and that ultimately all men are going to learn to fear him as they see the work of God and consider all the things that he has done. Now, can we apply that to this very day? Yeah, we can, because the world right now seems to be in constant upheaval. And, of course, because of the Internet and social media and everything else, we have 
constant news feeds telling us all the bad news that ever happened anywhere in the world all the time. It was easier when I was growing up and there was no internet. I was only concerned with what happened in my neighborhood. And it was a pretty quiet neighborhood, so good for me. But now, if something goes wrong on the other side of the planet, we, we know about it immediately. And then all the pundits and the sharp-tongued talkers get in there, and they say that, well, it's, it's racism, or, well, it's, it's anti-transophobia, homeo thing. It's, it's you hate people, and that's why this happened. And it's, and it's just constant. We hear about it all the time. And it's real easy in the midst of all that to start thinking, well, then God has lost control. Because the world is just in such a state of rebellion, such a state of evil, that God has lost the plot here. And yet here's David declaring that all these things that are happening in the world are ultimately going to be judged by God, and God is ultimately bringing this about so that he can demonstrate his judgment so that men will learn to fear him so that they will recognize that all these things are in his hand. He ultimately gets the glory for everything that happens in his universe and in his creation. And that includes David being on the run, being in the wilderness, being thirsty and hungry. And that includes men secretly desiring to destroy him and kill him and saying evil things about him and saying flattering things with their tongues, just like Absalom was, getting all of Israel to follow him by the flatteries that he spoke. So David said, all of this is all going to play out to the ultimate glorification of God because none of these things are outside the purview of an absolutely sovereign God. It's pretty remarkable. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God, and they will consider what he has done. And the righteous man will be glad in Yahweh and will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory in God. So, despite a world full of insanity, despite the troubles of this life, despite our enemies, despite people who are just out to talk bad about us, despite people who might even be out to kill us the way that they were out to kill David, despite all of that, Nevertheless, David declares, a righteous man is still going to be glad in the Lord. It is remarkable to me, given David's circumstances, that he can use all of this language of, my soul is satisfied, and my mouth offers <coughs> praise, and I think about you on my bed, and I meditate on you in the night watches, and my soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. All these very positive things that he says in the midst of terrible circumstances. And he concludes, the righteous man will be glad in Yahweh, regardless of your circumstances. Be grateful that you know God. Or better yet, be grateful he knows you. Be grateful despite your circumstances, <coughs> despite this world because the righteous man will be glad in Yahweh and will hide in him. Where are you going to go in this crazy world? Where are you going to go when your enemies are out to get you? 
Where are you going to go when people talk bad about you? You're never going to be able to fight those fights. You're never going to be able to change the world. You're never going to be able to make everybody turn around and do right again. Take refuge in God. Hide in him. Sing praises to him as his wings overshadow you. Because the upright in heart will glorify God. Hopefully you stuck with me through that whole journey so that you understood David's situation and then you could see his wonderful theology in those two psalms. And that's why we needed the backstory so that we could see that David was saying all these glorious, wonderful, beautiful things in the midst of terrible times. And so should we. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.